What time is it, you wonder? Well, it's time for Drinks with Tony on KPCRLP Santa Cruz 101.9 FM. Ba 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 da ba bum sound. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 138 of Drinks with Tony with my guest, Dan Denton. He's the author of $100 a Week Motel, out now on Punk Hostage Press. On Sunday, May 16th, join me and Megan Dom and Zibby Owens as we talk about podcasting and all things literary. Megan's podcast is called Unspeakable. Zibby's podcast is called Moms Don't Have Any Time to Read. And, well, you know my podcast. Go to litfestpasadena.org. Our panel starts at 1 p.m. on Sunday. That's litfestpasadena.org, all online. Writers, podcasters, agents, tons of info all day long. Join us. And my creative writing workshop at the Los Angeles Public Library is on Thursday, May 13th, and it's free. Go to lapl.org to sign up. Search for events and the Los Feliz branch. And if you've ever been to the Los Feliz library, there is a shrine to our god, Leonardo DiCaprio, because his family donated the building, I believe, for the library. So in a way, without Leo, I might not even be teaching at the library. So Mr. DiCaprio, thanks, buddy. Today's show was a fun conversation with Dan, and here's how I do the show. I do When I do the intro, after we, what we do is we chat for a bit, and then I do the intro, and then after the intro, nothing is edited out until I say thanks for being on the show. So it's kind of like live taping. Then after that, we sometimes talk for a while, and I never air that. And sometimes it's the best parts of the conversation, mostly because the guard is let down, and ultimately... Um, yeah, it's just, it's fun, but I don't air it because I'm not going to fool the guest. So Dan and I talked a lot after taping, and he asked me about my Chuck Palahniuk interview, which reminded me that Drinks with Tony started with my interview with Chuck Palahniuk over 20 years ago. And I was running Cherry Bleeds, a literary zine. I was interviewing people for film for my website, Film Junkie. And Chuck's publicist just reached out and asked if I wanted to interview him because he was going to be in Berkeley. And I said, yes, <laughs> immediately. Um, that's great. Thanks. And they go, okay, what are you interviewing him for? Like, well, like what's the outlet? So I said, uh, it's a literary web stream. Uh, and this, you know, this is what, I think the year was 2001. So this was before podcasting was a word and people actually had to come to my website to listen to it. And it was, it was a to do, which brings me to talking to Dan this week because I made a silly decision 21 years ago to start a webzine to publish my short stories and the short stories of my friends every week to give ourselves mainly a deadline. It wasn't a great idea, but I had to do something. And Dan, our, Dan, our guest, asked me about the interview with Paul Nook, and, and we spoke thusly after the taping. <laughs> so I, I got the Chuck Paul Nook interview, and then I just started doing interviews, and I was I also was a college radio DJ, so they got on KFJC, and then I was working at Pirate Cat Radio and Radio Valencia over the years when I um, when I was in San Francisco, and and there was a good chunk of shows that were online, and a lot of them didn't make it online from the live broadcast, especially in the early aughts. But it kind of blows my mind that I just made a small decision to do something, and it brings us here today talking to Dan. And I even stopped doing drinks with Tony between 2013 and 2018 because I was so involved in like moving to Los Angeles and later involved in what became 
Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, the film. And then once that was released, I just was utterly depressed, just gutted. It was like I was at war and war was over. So I walked the mean streets of Los Feliz. You know what I'm talking about. And I was trying to figure out how to break out of my depression. When, when was the last time I was happy and the light bulb went off? I was happy when I was doing drinks with Tony. So the next week I called up my friend Mark and told him I was starting the show again and he was my first guest. <laughs> and he just said, okay. He was my first guest 20 years ago after Chuck Palahniuk. And the next thing I know, 138 weeks today, we have 138 episodes in the can. What am I saying? I'm saying great things can come from decisions made when we're just trying to survive, when we're trying to fill the void of life, when, when everything feels heavy and we think outside the box, what excites me? What interests me? And then just do that and not for the money. Just, just do it and do it consistently. It's better than Prozac and a hand job. Hi, I'm Dan Denton, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Dan Denton. His new book is called $100 a Week Motel, and it's out now on Punk Hostage Press. Dan, how are you? <laughs> Hey, Tony, I'm doing well, man. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it feels weird to like say how are you after we've been talking for a while. It does, but it makes for, uh, I don't know. <laughs> probably makes... have on radio too. Yeah, exactly. No, no, yeah, exactly. The, oh, oh, dear Lord. The one time I get a phone call from a friend. I was just putting my phone on an airplane mode as you were doing the introduction. Uh-huh. My Mac computer synced with my iPhone. I didn't set it up. It just did it all on its own. But when my phone, the computer will ring. So I put it on airplane mode. So we were talking about baseball and you were like, what's your team? And I said, the giants and the look of disgust on your face was just gorgeous. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm a Cardinals fan. I grew up uh, about 90 miles from St. Louis and in the eighties, as a kid, the giants and Cardinals were kind of rivals. Yeah. And uh, we ended up actually in the 90s getting Will Clark from the Giants. And that was like the one exception. He, I became a fan of Will Clark, but not of the Giants. Wow. Yeah, it's funny because the rivalry was St. Louis and uh, the Giants. There was, it was heavy in the 80s and 90s, if I remember right. Yeah, both, both were good teams. But anytime I hear somebody's a baseball fan, I always have to ask because that was I, – I grew up – I was telling Tony, we were talking about your book and movie um, – Remind me, teenage uh, confessions of a. It, uh, that's it. <laughs> teenage nerd. Confessions of a teenage Jesus jerk. Close enough. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, People get it. <laughs> I watched uh, Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, and it gave me PTSD because I grew up in a Pentecostal house as a kid, and we didn't have a TV growing up. Oh so wow! On the radio every day. And that's how I became a Cardinals fan. Wow! So, so you you watched you couldn't watch baseball. You only listened to the uh, radio. And we and we were very limited to what we were supposed to be able to listen to because it's you know only Christian things. Right. And baseball was one of the exceptions. So. So and then like as for what radio stations you listened to, were you able to listen? Uh, did you have like um, certain things you couldn't listen to? Um, yeah, we had a. Um, 
I don't know if this is big anywhere but the Midwest, but mm-hmm. there's country gospel, southern gospel. Mm-hmm. We had a big channel, uh, country gospel station in our town in Illinois. Yeah. So that was pretty much the only thing we were allowed to listen to besides baseball or, or talk radio. My dad listened to talk radio my whole life growing up, Rush Limbaugh, that kind of thing. Um, country well, gospel sounds kind of cool, though. Yeah, so Southern Gospel is not as cool as it sounds. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I guess it depends on your uh, allegiances to the um, to God, I guess, and uh, I don't know. But watching your movie, that was the whole point of this statement, was watching your movie kind of gave me some PTSD flashbacks to being an awkward kid, awkward teenager, going through puberty, going through the phases of becoming an adult, while your parents are trying to restrict you to their religion and yeah it brought back some ptsd flashbacks good movie yeah thanks thank you my uh my my brother of uh you know fundamental christianity past (laughs) yeah yeah it was brutal isn't it because it's just like kids are trying to just come into their own and you just like press them and shame them and shame them and it's just it's not it's not a good position for um for anything i mean you know it's we 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 either kill people or end up writers i think that's that's the plan no we people tend to either have a lot of mental health issues and never go anywhere or become creative or something i've noticed that yeah well i i mean speaking of not going anywhere i had agoraphobia really bad for some years and it and i and i thought it was um i thought it was kind of all me and then i finally read a book by uh steve heisen called uh combating the cult mind and it's actually a really common thing for people to have agoraphobia when they leave um, a high control group, you know, or religion, or um, he, he specified mainly the Moonies and the uh, Scientologists, but it made so much sense. I wish I had read it earlier because then I could have put a little more defining to it as I was trying to get therapy and all that, you know? Yeah, that uh, I've been through a lot of therapy too. Uh, Maybe because of the, the child, definitely because of the childhood, but yeah, yeah. no, it's brutal stuff. Well, I'm glad it gave you PTSD because I was really excited about uh, the whole scope of everyone growing up repressed and not just the you know Jehovah's Witness thing. I wanted you know if I put all my stuff in there, it would be really confusing. I had to keep it <laughs> minimal. Yeah, and it, it it is. It's it's. A terrible time to think about and reminisce about i guess wow i know people go oh it must have been so therapeutic for you i'm like no are you kidding me it was like taking it was like taking a knife to scars and just re reopening everything to do it i'm so glad it's over <laughs> I, can yeah. I keep losing i keep losing you a bit on the mic there i don't know why probably because i move around and i don't have oh to- look at that <laughs> um <laughs> What's the, I lost you again. Go ahead. Maybe I have a bad cord, Tony. Yeah. Is that better? That's a lot better. Stay still. Oh, no, I lost you again. Keep talking. It all stays in. Even yeah. the... Even the I, is that better? That's good, right there. Okay. All right. Let's sit still. Um... But so what was, I mean, so you, you were, so we both grew up essentially in very extremely religious situations. How did you 
start moving away from it? I mean, were you were you aware when you were young, or how old were you? Uh, yeah, I um, I've probably been an atheist since I was twelve or thirteen, probably. Wow. Uh, I definitely have always had questions my whole life, and I don't know. There's probably some trauma that happened in my childhood that makes me so defiant, made me so defiant at a young age. Um, but yeah, I've always asked questions. I remember. So, and that's one thing growing up in a, in a very extreme fundamental religion, you're, they don't encourage free thought and they don't like people asking questions. And I always ask questions, you know, that's just in my nature. But I remember in the early nineties, I was 12 or 13, maybe reading on time magazine that there was a big famine in Africa. It was on the cover of time magazine. And I just remember the thought popping in my head. If there's a God that really loves me this much. How come this isn't, he doesn't really care too much about this, this African, you know, group of people. Yeah. And we were asking that in my church and it didn't go well. And from that point on, it was like a challenge. You know, I was going to trip them up somewhere along the way. And, you know, so, so what happens when you, how, how large was your congregation? Um, so it, it was a small family kind of church. Um, 60 people, maybe. Okay. It was tied with other churches that were like them in the Midwest, maybe 25 around the Midwest and the South. So they would have these church camps in the summer. So there was a lot of traveling around to the bigger churches for like revivals and stuff. And it, it you know, you get a lot of stories if you survive it and learn how to write. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> what, um, so you start asking these questions. How do they shut you down? How do they shut you down? How do they push you back? Well, at some level, it all boils down to where God's ways a mystery that we can never understand, and you just have to have faith. And that's not good enough for me. It just never has been. You know, I, I've just got to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the questioning thing. See, you're you're much smarter than I am. It took I, I was I got out when I was in my twenties. Um, even though in the movie, it, you know. I had to, I compressed like 20 years of like trying to figure shit out into 90 minutes and the course of a year. Um, but for me, it took a long time and I, I still believed into my twenties. I was, I, it, it took me forever to finally go, wait a second. Okay. I think this might be a problem. <laughs> you know, actually I read a study one time that said only like a very small percentage of Americans are ever able to change the childhood perception of God they were taught. And that kind of makes sense. Like it took a lot of things for me to completely change, you know, like you might, I might have questions as a teenager, but still you get in your twenties and you have hard times and, and you start thinking, you know, is it, you know, but then it, you know, it takes a pretty radical, you know, for me, it took being a homeless alcoholic for me yeah. to like really change my perception of God into the world, you know? Yeah. And, and um, how, so when you were homeless and how old were you when you were homeless? And just I was in my mid twenties, mid early to mid twenties. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of that's in the book um, about how you were just kind of motel hopping. And yeah, I, uh, so my book, a hundred dollar a week motel, I think I probably have, I think I've lived seven cheap pay by the week motels in my life. Yeah. It's and, and then how and then how do you how do you get out of that? Like, what is it where you're? Where, what is it where there's like a change and you're like, 
wait a second. I mean, it, it does, does, you know, does money come your way? Does like, so does help come your way? How did it, how does that work? So for me, I, it, and it's, for me, it was just a lot of luck, um, to be honest. Um, I had to quit drinking for me. That was my thing. You know, I had to quit. And, and you know, the thing about American homeless, there's like something like 90% of homeless people in America suffer from either mental health or alcohol and a drug addiction. Um, and something like 70% or 60 high in the, in the high sixties, it's like both, you know, and for me, it's both, you know, I'm bipolar mm-hmm. and addiction, you know? So for me, it was, I had kids. Um, I had fathered my twins will be seniors in high school. They're, they're getting ready to finish their junior year of high school now. So I had twins and I was going through a lot of things with their mother. We were going through a divorce and the judge in my divorce basically said, if I ever drank again, I would lose all visitation with my children. You know, I was barely hanging on to like a crappy apartment at that point, I had a job and stuff. And, and I had just lost that job. And from that point I spiraled down, I ended up in a halfway house. And from there, I found a group of people that really helped me. You know, it's not, it's not something you change overnight. Not at least not for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. All these years later. So this month marks uh, 15 years. Uh, later this month will be 15 years since I've had a drink. But for me, like even in, at 15 years later, I'm still going through therapy. Like I'm still working on some of those things that caused me to be homeless. You know, so I don't know if maybe you ever really do turn it all the way around. But you know. Yeah, I, 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 because most people, most people that live a life like that don't get to be, don't get to write books someday, you know, so I'm really incredibly lucky and blessed, you know. Yeah, it's so cool. It's, and that's the, that's the thing of the beauty of being a writer is we can, we, uh, you know, people my even my parents were like, we're so sorry what we did to you as a kid. And I'm like, no, no, I got, I got experience out of it, you know. Who, who, who gets to who gets to write a movie and gets to work with Eric Stoltz on his first feature? Uh, I, I don't think I could have if I didn't grow up a Jehovah's Witness. So you got these weird things in line. And then all of a sudden, if you kind of t- shift the narrative, it's uh, it, it, you go, OK, I'm blessed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, the movie uh, about the uh, Indian that won the uh, their, their version of Jeopardy. Right. Who- that movie uh, and it slips my mind. Slum dog, slum dog millionaire. That happens more and more frequently. By the way, in my forties now, I don't remember shit as, as well as I used. To. But anyway, slum dog millionaire. When you watch the movie, it tells you it shows you how he knew every answer to the questions. Right. I feel like sometimes looking back, life is a little bit like that, where you can see, oh man, I went through that for a couple of years, and that made me better at this at this point in my life, and somehow that all adds up to being a writer if you, you know, if you try harder or if you work at it hard enough, I guess. Yeah. And it's, and I think it, it also builds like empathy because you know, you know, the lows, you know, the highs, you know, and I think um, it's that wisdom experience and empathy and then push it all together. And we got the human condition, right? Or as uh, Bob Forrest said, it all ends well if you don't die. <laughs> In the front of my book. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The, um, what do you call it? I, 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 I'm, I'm just, I'm reading this book called the science of storytelling and the whole like first two pages about is about, um, we have to tell stories cause we're all going to die. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is exactly the lecture I give to my students the first week of the quarter to, to, to and see who stays. <laughs> I'm like, this guy's dark. I get this. 
That's that's perfect though. Um, I have that book. I haven't read it yet, but I have it on my shelf. Yeah, it's good. Oh, it's really good. It, it's it's funny because I love the I love reading this stuff because of growing up religious because we were told these stories from the bible that they're literal they're true god's gonna kill everyone but us and it's all weird mythology and to to like and in the in that situation it's to control you but in other in, in other ways in life we are we're telling ourselves stories all the time kind of just to be okay you know i, I just uh so on my podcast the blue color gospel hour i was very and this is how wild this book is, uh, Tony. So S.A. Griffin, who is on Punk Cossage Press too, like I've been a fan of his for a very long time. Like he's, like he's kind of one of my heroes, you know. Um, and then all of a sudden, I meet Iris Berry virtually on a Zoom meeting, Zoom reading, and she likes my poetry and sends me some emails, and I have a book. And all like Iris Berry, S.A. Griffin, these people were like heroes of mine, and now they. Like, it's just really, really weird to say that I talked to S.A. Griffin on a podcast recently. Like, that still blows my mind. But I was talking to S.A. Griffin on a podcast recently, and he was telling me that if you want to be a good writer, you really got to start by being a good storyteller. And I've been thinking about that a lot. And that's true. Like, you know, I guess that's where you got to start. So, Yeah. And then, and then just and then putting it to the page, it's a. Uh... Yeah, it blows my mind. And it blows my mind. Isn't it great to meet our heroes? And then they like, and then they read your work and you're going, what? How does this happen? It's really, being bipolar, it's really kind of a trip because I don't know. It's just, I'm still not used to it. Hopefully I never am, I guess. I, I, I don't think anyone does get used to it because I, you know, I still talk to my friends who, you know, some of them are like, like some of them are, you know, best-selling big time, crazy, amazing authors but there's still that fan in them and there's still that utter like that utter like um if, if they see someone that's a writer that they're a, that they're a fan of and they're just like oh i get to shake that person's hand and it's just we all have it and that's what i've learned is um is to stay a fan just stay hungry for you know more writers and just stay hungry for uh being a fan of writing and just be like oh my god here comes <gasps> you know, have a heart attack and it's, it doesn't matter who we are. That's, that's what I love. Yeah. And that's, I don't know. It's, it's been, it's been really good. Like I'm not complaining about it whatsoever, but it's still kind of a trip a little bit, you know? Yeah. It's, it's weird. It was one of my, one of my moments I was at a party and, um, and Jerry, not to name drop too much, but Jerry Stahl was there and it was Lydia Lunch's birthday party. And I walk and I walk up to, I, I've been friendly with Jerry. I, you know, I said, Hey, and he's all, Oh, hi. And then he goes, Lydia, do you know, Tony, he wrote an excellent book. And he, he was going on about how great the book was and how much he loved it and saying she has to read it. And I was looking at him like, you read my book <laughs> and, and you're also recommending it at a party. I, I would have never known that and when I when Permanent Midnight came out that one day the writer of that was going to be recommending my book in front of me to somebody. When did you uh, did you want to be a writer growing up or did you kind of find your way into that? So I found my way into it because there was really no you know, a lot of creativity is really squashed when you're growing up in there. They they don't want creativity because that asks that's opening up the door for questions. So. Um, it took, it took one of my friends killing himself when he was disfellowshipped 
and I went to the elders and I was in my, I was probably 22. I went to the elders and I was just, I was having a really hard time with his suicide, but he was his fellowship. And they essentially told me he was already dead. Don't grieve him because he was already dead according to the Jehovah's witnesses. And I was feeling suicidal myself. So I went to the library and just started, I, I, I found a Tony Robbins book at the library. That's one of the first books I read in my 20s was Awaken the Giant Within. <laughs> I'm just like, and it blew my mind. And I was reading all these other things. I'm like, oh God, there's hope. And it was right next to the poetry section. I started veering. I was at the library every night. I stopped going to the Kingdom Hall because you're supposed to go three times a week. So after work, I went to the library instead of the Kingdom Hall. I'm like, how do I not kill myself? Turned into, oh wait, these writers are speaking to me. And from that point on, I, at the library, I was even going, let's see, where would I be if I ever wrote a book, you know? And that's kind of where the, it started in my 20s. Yeah. I, I think what gave me a little bit earlier start than you really is that the library was one of the places I had free access to. You know, because we, we also, I grew up really poor in, a, in a, like a small government project. And we didn't have money, but we were allowed, to, we, you know, my mom would take us to the free library in town all like every week. And we could check out pretty much whatever we wanted to. And there's a lot of freedom in a library. As a matter of fact, that became, that was my high school job because I was there so much. They hired me part-time through high school. And so I worked at the library. Like I spent a lot of time at my library as a kid. And that's, I think that kind of made me want to write, you know, but also kind of made me more curious. There's something about books and like actually going after books and reading books that shifts perspective Better than I, I, you know, they say the, like the Kindle devices and all this stuff. It's not the same. It's just not the same. It's it, it, the, I don't know what it is about reading for me where I have, I, I have to constantly read or I'm losing my mind and, you know, and constantly reading, constantly write. That's as long as I could do that, I'm all right. And, um, and just the going through the long form of reading a story, you know, for 300 pages or whatever. And just diving into it, there, I digesting that story. I think just it's so different than digesting small bits of internet bites, you know. Yeah, and it yeah. One of the things that I tell people actually, uh, I'm really encouraged. There's more people in the factory I work in that read books than ever, um, which is encouraging, by the way. But yeah, that that's I, I just can't not read. You know, I don't. I keep buying books. I probably have five years worth of books right now if I never bought another book that I haven't yet read. And I keep buying more. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's not sexy. What, what, uh, what, what job do you have? What, what do you do at the factory? Um, so I'm a chief union steward at a uh, local Jeep plant here in Toledo, Ohio. It's actually the largest organized automotive plant in North America. It's about wow. six we build jeep wranglers wow because the auto industry just took a big old dump so it's it's like having a gig like that's rare now right they're very fortunate in toledo this is the birthplace of jeep mm-hmm. so they've been building jeep wranglers here in toledo since 1941 basically hmm. um, founded you know, from world war ii so jeep wranglers are almost recession proof because they have such a loyal following you know knock on wood, 
But right now, our whole company that we work, you know, Chrysler, almost every plant's been had shutdowns because of parts shortages. And they divert parts to our plant because we build Wranglers and it's the most profitable vehicle in Chrysler. And but we're very fortunate. We're working 70 hour weeks, you know, while everybody else is laid off. So, well, and are you, are you on the assembly line? Uh, not any longer. So I'm a chief union steward, uh, which is an position. So I am the union representative on the floor. You know, I have an office, but I spend about 80, 90% of my day on the floor talking to union workers who are on the line, you know, addressing their concerns, you know, whatever it is they need and negotiating things with management all day. That's cool. So when someone's on the line, is it kind of a repetitive job? They're the ones that are working on installing blank, a differential. They're, they're the differential team kind of thing. Uh, exactly. So that actually, I hate to admit this, but my job when I got hired there eight years ago, really revolutionized me as a writer because I, my working on an assembly line at some point you do the same thing over and over and over again it only requires 10 percent of your brain so i had 10 hour shifts long to think about things you know to have a book have a book while i'm reading between cars you know to uh we're not allowed to have them anymore we're not supposed to but we used to be able to have earbuds so i would listen to audio books while i was building jeep or i would listen to podcasts that's how i became a fan of podcasts and just having that whole 10 hour shift to think like I would work on poems. I would, I would, I, I wrote a lot of poems. I wrote stories while I was a Jeep and it was now my job requires a lot more brain power uh, to whatever ability of brain power I have left. And it's a lot more difficult to write, to write now, you know, so I wouldn't say more difficult. I just have less time. It's because I used to work for UPS. I was uh, loading the trucks and it's, it, it, what sucked about it is you kind of had to use your brain the whole time because you're looking at addresses and you got to put them in the right spot on the truck according to the route. So um, it, it felt like it's, it felt like a lot of work and a lot of brain work. It wiped me out at the end of a shift. I was just like a zombie. <laughs> that, that would be a good union company, by the way, UPS. Which is one of the reasons why I prefer them in the United States Postal Service being a union guy. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting because I was trying to get into the union. I was still a Jehovah's Witness at the time and I wanted to become a driver. And they, it, it was, I, I don't know what the time, it was just, there was so much demand. Uh, what do you call it? No, there was no demand for drivers. Everyone wanted to be in this, in UPS. It was, it was kind of before the dot-com really took off in the Bay Area. And, um, and I got passed by and I quit. And part of me, at the time I was devastated because if I could be a UPS driver, for me, that was set for life. I can get my own apartment, I can get my own car and I cannot worry about stuff. But the other part of me gets a little worried that if I got too comfortable, I never would have been able to do what I had to do, get out of the Jehovah's Witness, start writing. You know, if I was too comfortable and everything and my friend never killed himself and none of this stuff aligned and the elders weren't assholes to me. If like everything was okay, I still might be complacent in that. That's, that's wild to think back like that. But yeah, sometimes I look back and I'm like, well, if I would have, if I would have stuck at that first good job I had when I was 18 at a printing company, which, you know, I may have stayed there the rest of my life in that small town I grew up in, you know, who knows, yeah. but I got fired from there for being drunk at work. And I moved to D.C. 
and here we are. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 weird to think about what what shapes us in life because you know it's it's and and for some people having that first job and staying in it it's it's great. It it, it just I I think for me I couldn't have done it. You do you ever do that? Like I get, and I don't want to insult anybody, but I know a lot of people. They go to work, they come home, they help the kids with their homework, they have dinner, and they sit in their chair and they watch four hours of sitcoms and American, you know, Mass Singer and all these things. Then they go to bed happy every night. Now, I wish I could do that. Yeah, but not really. Part, part of me is just like that. Yeah. How, ex- how cool would it be to be satisfied? <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes I'm jealous of that, even though I know I could never do that, you know. Yeah, no, it's there's there is a part of me that's just like I it's just if I just had the two bedroom and the white picket fence and and I and I was great with that. How awesome would that be? Yeah, let me ask you. So working at UPS, I don't know what kind of other jobs you've had besides teaching and things and writing. Mm -hmm. Um, I got a theory. So I've worked in a lot of different factories and a lot of different places. That repetitive kind of work, I think, has a different kind of stress and anxiety than other places. Did you experience that too? Um, I, it, it, it was interesting because then I got my first office job maybe two years later. And that almost stressed me out more because I had to go to work in a suit. And, you know, I was a really, I was a law clerk. I was at the bottom of the food chain. But to go to work in a suit and make $10 an hour that was just, I was just like, it doesn't get any better than this. And there was a skip in my step and I was happy to go to work every day, but the not, it blew my mind that I didn't have to be moving stuff and doing stuff constantly that I could have time to just sit there and read the paper for a little bit if I wanted to. And it was hard to do that stressed me out coming from an environment where you had to produce, 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 and then you punch clout and then you can, it's, it, I don't know. It's, I, there was there was kind of a there was kind of a joy in the constant production and and I and maybe it's just because I'm I come from working class where I just feel like if you're not constantly producing you're not making a dime and to just sit there and I, I started writing that's I started writing poetry in the bathrooms when I was working at those corporate jobs so you know I would write my poems I would I would people probably thought I had uh, irritable bowel syndrome but I was sitting on the toilet so I can get out of the way and you know get paid for writing <laughs> that was my first paid writing gig too was writing poems at the back they were always on the clock writing a poem it, it, i used i was so psychotic about it i used to check the time and see how much time i was paid as a writer uh while i was in the bathroom so at the end of the day i'd be like oh okay i made 14 dollars as a writer today that's awesome <laughs> can't be the only ones by the way i bet that's more frequent than you think i know it's just to hide it just to like yeah they're probably thinking that we're in there masturbating which kind of we are on the page but you know it's <laughs> it uh i do have irritable bowel syndrome by the way um but i feel like home like i just i don't know <laughs> it could be a poem man bukowski taught me that you know? yeah exactly you know it's he's got some poems I'm sorry. Bukowski has bathroom poems. Yeah. Bukowski kind of changed my life on so, on so many levels because that what's great about him is he's got, he's got a heart and there's so much of like, Oh my God, I can do this. 
you know, I think it, I think it, I think it touches dudes where it's just like, oh, wait, we can, we can have our feelings on the page and it's this easy. And then, you know, 10 years later, we're like, it isn't this easy. Everybody thinks it is though. I mean, that's, everybody I know has a book, you know, like that's the universal thing. I think is everybody's got a story, right? That's why I started a podcast. Um, But people kind of like dismiss writers sometimes and maybe it's because I am one and I know how hard I've worked at it, or maybe there are people better at it. They don't have to work this hard. Maybe I just, I don't know. I found the easier the book to read, the harder and longer it usually took for the author to write. That, uh, yeah, that's probably true. When, when did you start your podcast? Um, during the pandemic last year. Um, so working in a factory, some friends and I had, you know, we became friends of Joe, or fans of Joe Rogan show. And then we branched off the, Oh, Hey, podcasts are cool. Listening to all these different podcasts. And I found like Malcolm Gladwell and some of these like mm-hmm. intellectual ones where I could learn shit, you know, and yeah. uh, excuse me. Um, but so we always talked for like three years. Hey, let's start a podcast. Well, fast forward to 2020, we had just signed a new union contract at Chrysler. So we had a ratification bonus. And my family's vacation to Disney World got canceled because of the pandemic. And I'm stuck at home. The factory's closed and going crazy. And my significant other says, hey, you've always wanted to start a podcast. You got a little bit of money. And here we are. That's Uh, fantastic. During that time, I also wrote my book. Like I had started to work on it. And then I had all this free time. And we, I think we were off, uh, the factory was shut down for about two and a half months, I think, uh, before we were able to reopen. And that's the longest amount of time in a row I've been off of work in 15 years since I got sober. Uh, and I kind of felt challenged after a week or two because I work probably on average 70 hours a week, probably, right? Um, you know, I've got a family, you know, I got, you know, I work hard. Um, I've always said if I had more time, I would write a book, right? Like maybe that's what's holding me back is I don't have time. And then all of a sudden I had nothing but time and nowhere to go. And it kind of, I kind of felt like I chat, like that really kind of like stared me in the face and I sat down and I started writing. Wow. I'm back to work and I got to figure out how to keep writing, you know, but. Yeah. It, that's, um, and, and, it, and it's gotta be a challenge too, if you're trying to stay sober and you're thrown into, oh, wait, all I have is my own thoughts. And I've been working. It's, you know. So that uh, it's weird. I don't know if it's weird, but a lot of people ask me that because, of course, $100 a week motel, there's a lot of alcohol and drug abuse. Uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of real experience in that book. And a lot of people have asked me about that. But I think because of who I am, you know, when I got when I quit drinking, you know, I, I didn't do a lot of the things that people are told to do when they quit drinking. And I don't know if that's because I'm so defiant, but you know, I went to bars, you know, from day one and I would go there and just not drink. And I'd be, you know, I, I would want to at least early on, but after a while, I, I think I just really accepted the fact that, Hey, I can't drink anymore. It's okay. If everybody else does. And so being a writer and being, being in the artist community and even in the Midwest, there's a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts, and there's a lot of, you know, I work at the, you know, in an in automotive factory, which is historically known for having a lot of drugs and alcohol and issues like that. And I don't know, I just, I, I it's good to be able to write a book like that. And it may not bother me 
like I'm pretty aware of the fact that I can't live that life anymore, you know? Kind of, it kind of syncs up to how when you were stuck in a religion, the the Pentecostal and you went, no, wait, this is, this is not working for me. There is no God. (laughs) And that, so being that defiant from that age, it's probably helpful on many levels. It's, it's, and that's what, you know, you wind up learning the older you get that, I used to think being stubborn was kind of like a character defect and it is sometimes, but it's also one of my biggest, my biggest traits. I guess that's one of my biggest, probably good things in my character too, you know, because I have a stressful job and I won't quit. You know, I, you know, you, you learn, I don't know, being stubborn sometimes a good thing. I'm not easily swayed, I guess. So that's not a bad thing. And, 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 you know, when, um, when we're writing or working on characters, we got to come up with flaws because the most interesting characters have a lot of flaws. And I, th- I think that kind of helped me to go, wait a sec. I mean, I know I have a lot of flaws. What if I just steer these flaws in this direction? So, so they're a little bit more, they're positive. You know, we could kind of turn it a little bit and go, oh, wait, okay. If I don't point my anger that way, but I point it this way and use it for good or, you know, so-called good, what I think good is, you know. Instead of punching a hole in a wall, I can go do out and do something productive about it. And, you know. Yeah. And I, I think that's the challenge, I guess. I don't know. I, I guess the cool thing is finally writing a book. By the way, that's my first book that I ever wrote, start to finish and completed. Um, finishing that, getting that published in an amazing way by Punk Hostage Press, by Iris Berry, and, you know, who was one of my heroes. Yeah. Finally, I tell everybody, finally, for the first time in my life, I know exactly what I want to be in life. You know, it took me 40 years. I suspected for a long time I really wanted to be a writer. But, you know, now I'm really sure this is what I want to do. I want to write. Um, but I still got to work in the factory, you know. I still have kids, to feed and kids that want to go to college. And... College smallage. Just tell them, to, tell them to read your book and then become big time famous one day. That's yeah, <laughs> I've tried, but they got other ideas. My son wants to be. I don't even know if that's a good career field to go into, but have at it. Well, what what I didn't hear. What was he wanted to be? He wants to be an architect. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't think that goes away because um, e- even outside the even outside the uh, construction industry, I think the the having a blueprint of any project is how things work, right? Yeah. Yeah. I can't read blueprints, so yeah. I'm off to the National Honor Society, and they might be able to go to college for free. I'm really excited about that part. Oh, cool! Have your kids read your book? I don't think so. So, uh, uh, my my twins are they'll be 17 this summer. I think probably I, three or four years ago, my first chapbook came out um, from EMP Press, and it's called "Bury My Heart in the Gutter." And it's just what it sounds like. It's, you know, gutter poems. And when it came out, I had a lot of, you know, I, I had been going to readings for a long time. I sold a couple, several, several hundred copies of it. And my kids asked about it. So I gave them their copy. I gave them a copy. You know, because I'm thinking if my dad wrote a book, I'd love to read it, you know. I think they were 13 then, 12 maybe. So their mom got really mad at me. Um, I, I haven't given them a copy of my book, but I have one for them and they're welcome to have it. I think they're old enough. At, at this point, they're juniors in high school. There's nothing in that book they haven't heard about, you know, 
Yeah. Even way more so than we and you did when we were juniors in high school because of the internet. I mean, right. my 10-year-old daughter the other day was talking to me about femboys. And that's a really great conversation to have with your children. You know, I want my children to grow up and be inclusive and tolerant, you know, and like all encompassing and open-minded. But when I was 10 years old, I didn't even know that was a thing. You know, like that, I was so sheltered even in government projects. They were called femboys? Femboys, yeah. That's what, uh, what is that? Kind of like a, a cross-dresser, transgender person. Uh, a femboy would be... Fuck, I'm I'm not qualified to have this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's interesting. The kids, the go ahead. I'm sorry. I used to volunteer at an LGBT youth center mm-hmm. as a as a writing group leader, and I still am not the person to have this conversation. But I think it's like teenage or like young or like young adult men who identify as more feminine. They wear women's clothing, um, things like that. I think is what that would be. We just used to call it punk rock when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's funny how growing up, like, in the 80s in the Midwest, like, there was only, like, six genres of music, you know? Mm-hmm. And now it's like, there. I, I just found out there's a thing called pop punk. Oh, uh, yeah. I didn't even know that that was a thing until recently. And I'm like, ah, okay, it makes sense now. Somebody told me Nirvana was pop punk, and I'm like, huh? I'm like, well, I guess maybe after I found out what it was, I guess. I don't know. Oh, interesting. It's yeah, because I mean, I remember when they were the because I was doing college radio at the time when uh, before they got big. And if they were playing in town and there was another band, we'd go see the other band because you knew Nirvana was boring. And this was probably before they had Dave Grohl on drums, too. I think when they got Dave Grohl on drums is when they um, when you get a good drummer, then the band changes you know but they were just known as someone not to really go check out uh oh wait you know mud honey's playing we're gonna go see mud honey instead of nirvana so well, good man, by the way. but yeah, yeah i didn't i don't know but yeah things are different now so yeah the internet I, I can't even imagine how radically different it must be to be 17 today compared to in 1995 when i was 17 and the internet was only at my town library on two computers with the phone line. You know, how radically different it must be. I, just, I think we, there's the beauty of searching that, you know, that we'd have to go out and physically buy albums. Some albums, I didn't even know any songs on them and you didn't get to sample the songs, but you heard from a friend of a friend that this band sounded kind of like this and you'd be cool if you had that album. And the nerves to go up to these, to these, you know, gods of the cashiers who, you know, they were all in bands and just be like, will you accept me into your club? And they just would look at the album, roll their eyes and you and get you out of there. And um, the same with books. When I didn't find out about Bukowski until he died. And I was like, oh my God, I need a book by this guy. I went to San Francisco. I picked up, there was like two books there. And I don't even remember what book I picked up brought it to the cashier. The guy held it up and goes, hey, are we going to sell more Bukowski now that he died? <laughs> like making fun of me. And, and that was how we used to find stuff. We'd have to be teased. We'd have to like, you weren't given, nothing was given to you. You had to go in there and like kind of fight for your dignity and they would kill your dignity. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, college radio, one of my friends growing in, in college in a community college in Illinois, 
which got me to be an activist, by the way, because he came out gay in college or he was gay in college. And that revolutionized my whole world. It was the first real gay person I knew. And all of a sudden I realized that he was just like, every, you know, yeah. I heard all these things growing up in a Pentecostal religion about gay people. And all of a sudden you get to be friends with one. You're like, oh, this is one of the coolest guys I know, you know, but he was a college radio DJ at our community college. So I would get free CDs and uh, singles, cassette tapes all the time. So all of these crazy bands, and it would be like the A-side cassette tape, B-side, or I would get like free CDs they would get for promos and stuff, and he would just give them to me all the time. Yeah, that was kind of cool. Is it, it was glorious when I, um, when I would hang out with uh, friends who were gay and when, after I left the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I would tell them, I'd be like, I used to think you were going to die at Armageddon. I had no clue. And, and they, and it was just, it was like an embracing. I was like, just, I was like, thank you. I was like walking around just like trying to get as much of just the humanity of people that I used to deny when I was younger, you know, it just blew my mind that that was even a consideration. Yeah. I, I think uh, for me, it was, I, I met Corey in college, you know, we got to be friends. Uh, I went with him and some other friends that I had met, you know, because of him to Chicago pride uh, when I was 18 years old and that it was over. That was the most fun weekend I'd had in my life to that point with the most interesting people. Like these, I didn't even know these people existed like, this many people. And like, it was amazing. Yeah. And, you know, same thing. You know, I've been an activist, you know, ever since because of him, you know, yeah. It's amazing what, uh, like you're force fed something like that for so long. And then you kind of get into the real world, you know, and you're like, oh, wow. You know? Like even it, it used to crack me up because Jehovah's Witnesses would be like, don't listen to music because they're all into drugs and they're all having orgies and everything. And, and then I'd hang out with these musicians later in life and they would all just have families. And this was like just something they were passionate about. And, there, you know, there was no drugs. Sometimes there was drugs here and there, but. Uh, you know, it's around, but not everyone. It's it's not the big demonism that was shoved down our throat of what these people were. They're just trying to put on a show. And it's it's a lot of work to lug your gear in and out of clubs and get back in the van. It's a job. It's harder than most jobs. That, uh, so I, I think for me, I grew up in the projects and there was this guy in the projects that was like, a, he was in a motorcycle club. And like my parents told me to stay away from him and his family because he was into drugs, you know, motorcycles. And of course, as a, like a 10 year old kid, he, he was like, he didn't have a job. And all he did was like get up at 10 o'clock in the morning and drink beer, listen to loud music and like work on motorcycles. And there were always like good looking women around. I'm like, why are my parents telling me to stay away from him? This guy's exactly what I want to be as an adult. So I started sneaking over and hanging out with this guy. And that's kind of how I got introduced to drugs. And, but that was immediately from like 10 years old. I'm like that. I want to do drugs. Like <laughs> I, I and, did. And he was working on motorcycles and you ended up in the motor industry. I ended up. Yeah. Working. Yeah. It's amazing. I had a motorcycle until I was eh, in my early twenties. The last time I had a motorcycle, I probably, I don't know if I'll ever have another one. But. Why wouldn't you have another one? I always say I'm going to get one this year and then having a family and a life and working in the auto industry that's up and down. And sometimes you get laid off for a while. And so my job is especially mostly reliant on the economy, despite the fact that still two framers, 
but uh, something always comes up and I don't buy a motorcycle. And I think I'm at an age, you know, my, my wife's a little older than me. So we have a two-year-old grandson. I have a stepdaughter that's 29. And I think once you get to be a grandpa, if you don't already own a motorcycle, probably maybe I'll just buy a classic car. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. That sounds like fun. I used, I used to ride a Vespa, you know, um, and, but after a while, especially in San Francisco, the people that were crashing all the time and they, and they would be out of commission for three months. Cause they would, you know, and I was just like, I'm too, I'm too old to be out of commission. I can't be out of commission. I gotta, I gotta keep doing stuff. I, uh, I visited San Francisco one time when I was 18. Um, the college I went to, I was, I was a journalism major and I got to be a sports editor of our newspaper before I ended up getting kicked out, plunked out of college. Um, they sent me and three other teenagers to San Francisco for a college journalism conference. And when I went, I was, the, I was probably one of five kids in my whole t- hometown of 25,000 people that had a Mohawk in 1996. And I immediately got off the airplane and fell in love with San Francisco because before I left the airport, I saw 500 people that had a Mohawk and I'm like, I have arrived. These are my people, you know, and I think to this day, that's my, I have a fascination with Southern California, San Francisco South because of that. Uh-huh. It was in LA. The first time I ever saw a crossdresser as 16, you know, yeah. I remember walking and seeing somebody dressed in women's clothes that had a beard being a 16 year old kid that didn't have a TV or an internet and not really seeing that and just being like, Oh, what, you know, wow. And just, you know, can't stop staring, you know, yeah. San Francisco, Southern California, they just seem to be my people. I don't know. It is. Yeah, it is fun. And I remember 1996 vividly, you know, when I was, I was in San Francisco that year. Um, and Yeah trying to see as many shows as I could, seeing, seeing every band I could at those days. That was right when I started going to shows, by the way, in 96, because of my radio DJ buddy. And I felt like I, I was already listening to rock and country music and blues. And I fell in love with live music at 18 when I started going to shows. Yeah. Now, there's something about the live experience that's just... The thing I've missed the most about COVID and pandemics is... I've got a lot of singer songwriter friends and I can't go see shows, you know? Yeah. I hope they're coming back. I, think so. I don't yeah. know. We'll see. Yeah. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Dan Denton on drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, $100 motel out now on punk hostage press. Remember to join me for my free creative writing workshop on Thursday through the Los Feliz branch of the Los Angeles Public Library. All are invited. There's only a few more months of online action, so get in while you can if you're outside of Los Angeles. Go to lapl.org, search for Los Feliz branch events, and sign up for the 90-minute class because I think we're going to be back in person in fall. Also, on Sunday, May 16th, join me at 1 p.m., with Megan Dom of Unspeakable and Zibby Ohms of Moms Don't Have Time to Read as we talk about podcasting and all things literary. Uh, And that is when you go to litfestpasadena.org. And our panel starts at 1 p.m. That's litfestpasadena.org, all online, writers, podcasters, agents, 
Tons of people all day long, so pop in while you can. We're on at 1 p.m. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. I'll see you next week. And how is my how am I losing my voice? <laughs> Have a good weekend. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. You are on your radio dial at 101.9 FM, KPCR LP, Santa Cruz.